right, please join me in prayer. Psalm 138 begins, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise. I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. For you have so exalted above all things your name and your word. When I called, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning for your unfailing love and your faithfulness. We call to you this morning knowing and entrusting uh, that your promises of care for your people are true. We know you hear our prayers. In the areas of our hearts and our minds where unbelief may reside, Lord, please help our unbelief. Father, we have confessed our sin and have been restored to fellowship to one another and to you this morning through the work of Christ Jesus, bearing our sin on the cross. Help us, O oh Lord, to live unto righteousness. We praise you this morning for the sacrament of baptism, and we ask you, Father, to embolden the Barlotta, Faulkner, and Hatley families to raise Wyatt, Almina, and Judah in the truth of your word and grace. Father, it is our hope that there will never be a day in which these children do not know your love for them. Help us, O oh God, as a church family, to love Rachel and Kevin, Sarah and Caleb, Kristen and Micah, by walking alongside of them as they point their children unto you and the salvation provided for them through Christ Jesus. Likewise, we give you praise this morning for the birth of Bethany Grace Smith, daughter of Catherine and Daniel Smith. We give you thanks, O Lord, author of all life, for this new covenant child. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lowly. Though he is lofty, he sees them from afar. Though we walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve life. So, Father, we come before you this morning interceding on behalf of those in our midst who are in particular need. We lift up Susan and Todd Weston this morning in the loss of Susan's father, Buddy, and we pray with our heavy hearts that you would uphold the Fontaine family. But we do not grieve without hope. So we ask that you will send your hope, your grace, and your peace with Susan and Todd, with Isabel, Stewart, and Edward. Support them with your loving kindness, O Lord. We also lift up Lane and Wynn Jones as Lane is in the hospital. Send your peace to be with Lane and encourage Wynn as he cares for his wife. We pray for Cindy and Bill Hay with grateful hearts for their many years of gospel ministry here at Covenant and across the globe. We pray, pay for, pray for peace and rest in this time of declining health. Your love, O Lord, endures forever, so do not abandon the work of your hand. This morning we specifically pray for the work being done through our local ministry partner, Save a Life. They serve babies and families here in Birmingham by helping mothers make life-affirming decisions about their unborn children. Father, we also lift up the Ministry of Vacation Bible School, the many staff, volunteers, and children's, children whose hearts will be shaped this week. We praise you for your faithfulness throughout the generations, specifically for your faithfulness for our Presbyterian Church in America. And we ask that your presence go before and abide during the 50th General Assembly gathering this week in Memphis, Tennessee. We pray for our denominational committees and agencies. We pray for local presbyteries and commissioners and all present that they would have a worshipful and united heart. O Lord, fulfill your purposes for our denomination through your steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And finally, Father, we ask that you will prepare our hearts and our minds now to receive your word proclaimed through your servant, Reverend Holt. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm really thankful that Heath prayed for our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. One of the things about our denomination that might interest you that you might not know is we actually have Korean Presbyteries. Did you know that? We have Korean Presbyteries uh, in our denomination. Why in the world do we have Korean Presbyteries? You may not know this, but the church is pretty big in Korea and uh, a majority of Christians in Korea, and this is true for a very long time, are Presbyterian. And those Presbyterian Christians in Korea, they're very evangelistic and they're really committed to God's global mission to all the nations. And that's, and so a lot of our brothers and sisters have ended up here in our country for various reasons. And we have whole presbyteries that are Korean Presbyterians. But these millions of Presbyterians in Korea and other Christians who were very zealous for evangelism and God's global mission, it wasn't always like that in Korea. In 1863, there were zero Christians, as far as we know, in Korea. And there was a young man who was from Wales uh, named Robert J. Thomas. Uh, He was 23 years old, and he had a burden to carry the gospel to Korea. So in 1963, he moved uh, to China and um, trying to get on his way to Korea. And then he he eventually uh, met some Korean Christians uh, who had b- moved to China and, and became Christians uh, in China. And he met two Korean Christians in China and he realized they could read uh, the Chinese Bible, the Bible in Chinese, which was great news because there were no scriptures in Korean. And, and so he was, he was excited that these Christians uh, could read the Bible in Chinese. And then they told him that all educated people in Korea could read the Chinese characters And so immediately he was thrilled and he decided that he would take Chinese Bibles and tracts about the good news about Jesus Christ written in Chinese characters to Korea as fast as he could, which was a great plan, just hard to execute because they had a little slightly stringent tourism plan in those days, Korea did. And here it was, if you visit us, we kill you. That was the plan. Uh, They just weren't accepting visitors in those days. They didn't apply that law uh, everywhere at the same level, but that was the law of the land in 1863. Well, he ended up going in 1865. He tried once and didn't work out. He went back, and I'm not kidding, he he got on a boat owned by Americans named uh, the General Sherman. And it was businessmen uh, who were going and basically they were going to explore as much of Korea as they could get away with. And they were pretty bold men. They weren't believers. They weren't going as missionaries. But he talked his way onto that ship and he took a lot of Bibles, Chinese Bibles and Chinese gospel tracts with him, as many as he could take on that boat. And so that boat uh, decided to go across the Yellow Sea and um, up the What's that? Katia Tonga? I can't remember. That's the, the river. The river. I can't think of the name of it right now. And, uh, and so they went up the river about 50 miles and they got close to the Pingyang city, big walled city. And along the way, you know, he had stopped and, and there's been a few people, there'd been a few people that they, they'd pulled over when they thought it was safe. And he had met a few people and he kind of handed some Bibles to people. You know, the ones that would accept him. And when, when, if no one accepted, he just literally took Bibles and just laid them on the bank of the river and kept going, just praying God would use it somehow. Well, anyway, uh, the, this river that they were on uh, is, has crazy currents and there's lots of islands near Pengyang City. And it's really hard uh, to, to 
traverse it if you haven't done it before, don't understand how the currents work. Uh, and one time a month, you actually can get to certain places, especially close to that city going in that direction from the sea up the river. And it's when there's a full moon, because when it's only when the high tide is at its highest can you get to where you need to go. And so at just the right time, uh, their boat arrived there and they got through all the rapids and got to the, where they wanted to go. Um, and uh, they're on their way. Uh, they pulled over and they sent the, a delegate of officers to go and speak uh, to the governor that lived in that city and the captain of the army that lived in that city. And they, they basically wanted to say, are you going to let us live if we dock here? And they had a really positive meeting. It went great. Everything was great. They, they, they were friendly and they, they realized they could uh, dock there and then engage with people of that city. But while they were, the officers were in there, uh, the men on the ship engaged with some Koreans on uh, the riverbank there and they arrested them and detained them on the General Sherman uh, without the officers knowing. And by the time the officers got back to the ship, the people around them knew that the, their shipmates had arrested some Koreans and the Koreans were furious. The people that were arrested were very afraid and all their friends and families were furious. And so uh, the, they, were, they were detained on the ship. Some of the Koreans jumped off the ship trying to escape and two of them died in the river trying to escape. And now everyone's furious and everyone's enraged and it turned from bad to worse. Great mission strip plan. And so the people began to line uh, thousands of people line the river and they're shouting at them. They've got these uh, flint rifles they're shooting at them that aren't very powerful, but it's a pretty scary scene and they're stuck there and they can't land now. And so eventually they're trying to figure out what they're going to do and they, and they have superior weapons to the, what they're facing. And so they, but they're just waiting, they're trying to figure out what's going on, but they wait too long and the tides change. Then they decide they're going to go back toward the sea and they get stuck in the middle of the river. Uh, while during that time that they were stuck and they had arrested these men, these men had died. Rumors began to fly about these men on the ship. And the, the rumors were that they were here to raid their ancestr- ancestral tombs and harvest the eyes of their young children for their foreign medicine. That's what the, the, the rumors they were spreading about these people. And there all the time was Robert Thomas, the lone Christian on the boat who just wanted to take God's word and give it to people and tell them about the love and saving power of Jesus. Well, they get stuck in the river and the Koreans realize just in their minds just how bad these guys are. So they take a bunch of small fishing boats. They fill those small fishing boats with dry pine branches. They chain them together, making a long line. They understand how the currents of this river work. And at just the right time, they light the boats and this big chained boat line on fire goes around the General Sherman, surrounds it, and the whole boat is up in flames. Now they have one alternative. They can uh, jump in the river and fight for their lives. And so they do. All the men, the officers and all the other men from China and Malaysia, they jump off the boat and they swim for the shore. And now they're going to have to fight for their lives with men who have clubs and knives and rifles. And they fought valiantly and they all died. Every single one of them, including the Reverend Robert J. Thomas. But he acted a little differently than the rest of the guys. So they were all fighting with their lives with their swords and their rifles as they came out of the water. But Robert Thomas came out of the water awkwardly, holding as many books as he could. And as he was being beaten and dying for his faith, he was handing those books to people whose language he didn't speak. Handing them books, handing them books, pulling flyers out, handing them, and they beat him to death. What's interesting is that was 1865. By that time that happened, by 1957, 
There were 27 Presbyterian churches in that city of Pyongyang. Tens of thousands of Christians, uh, thousands and thousands of Christians who weren't part of those churches and, and the gospel spread from there. And now today we have Korean Presbyterians in our, in our own denomination. And I assure you, uh, these Korean Presbyterians to this day are wonderfully evangelistic and deeply committed to God's gracious mission to rescue the nations because they know he rescued them from darkness and pulled them to himself into his marvelous light. I tell you that story because we're reading first Peter, this epistle from the apostle Peter. And this is a missionary letter from apostle. He's telling God's people who are new believers in the part of the world where they live, Bithynia and those other towns in what's now modern day Turkey. When Peter writes them probably from Rome, he's writing Christians. And this is just want to remind you what he's been saying to them. You're God's holy people. You're God's royal priesthood. You're set apart for God's purposes that you might proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have a missionary encounter with the people that live around you. So you're God's people. You exist to declare God's praise. Also, Peter writes them and says, I know a lot of you live in your, your same old ho- hometown. Some of you don't. Some of you were kicked out of Rome and other places, but some of you are living in your own normal hometowns, but you're Your hometown's not your native place anymore. You're all sojourners. You're exiles. Your true home, your true loyalty lies somewhere else. And you've got to learn to be God's sojourners, God's missionary people where you live. And that's why Peter has written this letter. And so uh, today we're getting to a section where he begins to address people specifically Everything he said before this section, he's addressing God's people very generally saying, you're God's royal priesthood and I want you to live as God's servants. You're God's holy people. You live for the, to proclaim God's praise among your neighbors. Over and over, he's addressing them generally, but now he's going to address them specifically. And so let's pick up, we're going to read from 1 Peter 2. I pulled some verses from the near context in our passage today is verses 18 and following. So if you will, let's read along and pick up on this letter that Peter has written to believers there in the first century. He said, you're the royal priesthood, the holy nation. You may proclaim his greatness, the one who's pulled you from darkness to light. So then he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, that's an important verb from previous passages, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Honor everyone, he wrote in verse 17. In verse 16, he said, live as God's slaves. You've been rescued, but now live as God's servants. And then here's today's passage. He finally gets specific. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the women, holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you in Jesus' name to grant us the help now that we need to understand your word. Much of that help is the softening of our hearts Grant us deep heart humility so that we would want to hear what you say to us. Help us become like our Savior who rescued us, that we might reveal your glory through suffering, submission, holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this is super interesting. The Apostle Peter is writing to this group of believers, and they're in multiple churches. And he has addressed them in all kinds of general language. Royal priesthood, sojourners, exiles, God's very special possession. He just keeps addressing them and it's something that applies to all of them. And the first time in the letter when the apostle Peter wants to address someone specifically in the congregation, he begins with someone with very, very low status. And I want you to see that with me and grasp what's going on here from Peter's perspective. He's taken someone with very low status and that's the first person he addresses. And I want you to know that's unique and interesting because in the ancient world, no one spoke to slaves or to household servants in official letters, like from an apostle or from a governor or things like that. No, you might write about how to control your household servants and slaves. You might write about how to beat your household servants or slaves in the ancient world in the first century. You might write about how to buy or sell them and different things about that. But nobody that was seen as important or significant would have written, especially to a community mixed with slave and free and addressed them directly. And look, it's the first specific address in Peter's letters is to people with very low status. The word here that he uses here, servants, really means household servants. And household servants in the first century just, 
I'm sure you know this, but it's very different than the slavery practice in our nation in previous centuries. Um, but it still was uh, servitude. It still was, they still were servants or slaves, household slaves. Um, they were part of the family, so to speak, from an economic perspective and social perspective. And they did all kinds of tasks. Household slaves uh, cooked food and cleaned things, and some functioned like accountants. Uh, some functioned a lot. If you work for a really wealthy person, you might function like an architect or an engineer. And so a lot of the jobs that we pay people to do now uh, in the ancient world were done by people that technically were household servants. And those servants had various levels of authority. But in a community like this, there would have been people of very low status. And look what the apostle Peter of Jesus Christ does. He addresses them first. He's elevating their status in the church, even though he's telling them, look, we all know that some of you work for some pretty good people, but some of you don't. And what are you going to do when you work for a jerk? That's basically what Peter is addressing here. Look what he says. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That's a gracious thing. And Peter goes on to explain, you know, it's easy uh, to serve someone who's nice, but, but what Peter says is what credit to you is it if you get beaten for being bad? Well, what if you're mistreated and you're being good? That is a gracious thing in God's sight. What Peter means here in the context of the letter is that's the exact kind of behavior God values, loves, and uses in the lives of others. Now, in this context, Peter's helping people who believe in Jesus learn how to embody the grace and kindness and the saving power of Jesus Christ. And that's why he ends up using this, this household servant and connecting him to the behavior of Jesus himself. Uh, in, in our uh, cultural context, there aren't any slaves or servants, uh, not in our homes, not in our communities, though the world is full of people enslaved for all kinds of terrible reasons. Uh, but everyone in this room um, uh, were either hires people or works for people that hire people. And it, it's the, this kind of passage can help us think about that. Uh, in our cultural context, if you work for someone who's not a very good boss and they're mean to you, and if you've got the freedom, if there's nothing wrong with looking for another job, that, that's totally fine if you've got that freedom, the ability to get hired somewhere else. But before you go from job A to job B because your boss is a really hard person to work for and doesn't treat you well, you could hit the pause button And just ask yourself in God's presence, why am I here? Is it possible that I'm here in this difficult, hard situation working for someone who is very unkind, who is unkind to me and others? Am I here, Lord, for the sake of this person who is mistreating me? We have much more freedom than the people who read this part of the letter had. But how might we use that freedom in our cultural context? Sometimes we need to stop and see that there might be wonderful opportunities for us to show off the saving power and the glory of a suffering servant king when we actually are called upon to serve and to suffer. Let's admit it. There's nothing we want to do less than that. But here it is offered as an opportunity to reveal the saving glory of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. Verse 21, for to this you have been called 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What was Christ suffering about? Christ suffered to save you and me and to reveal the saving glory of God. God's saving power and glory were most evident on the cross when Jesus was being abused, ridiculed, and crucified. And he didn't open his mouth. And he didn't give back abuse. When you were being saved by your king, when he was on the cross, he was saving you and rescuing you. And also, Peter says, setting an example for lowly people, but for anyone who sees themselves as God's servant. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, not in the 18th century, but in the, in the, or not in the 19th century, but in the last century, uh, there was a doctor who went uh, to the Republic of Congo, Dr. Paul Carlson, and he was there as a medical missionary. Dr. Carlson was there to heal people in the name of Jesus. <laughs> He wanted to actually heal people of their sicknesses and injuries and diseases. And he wanted them to know the saving power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was falsely accused of being a mercenary, not a missionary. And at some point, some paratroopers came into Belgium, into the Republic of Congo, and uh, they were fighting with this rebel group. And the rebel group had Dr. Carlson and others who they'd falsely accused. They had them as their prisoners. And when the gunfighting was at the worst, they took those prisoners out in the middle of the gunfight. Just they thought, you know, what? it'd be fun. Let's let the Belgians shoot them. The paratroopers are pretty good shots. So they just struck them out right in the middle of all the, all the fire. Uh, many of them were killed right there in the street. Dr. Carlson and a few others, they ran. And Dr. Carlson got really close to not dying. But at the very end, we almost escaped. One of those rebels ran around the corner, shot him five times, and he died immediately. Tragic death. Matter of fact, this picture was all over Life magazine, as Doug Webster tells the story back in the 60s. But I want you to know that uh, four months before he was shot down because he was a medical missionary healing lives to bring people to faith in Jesus. Uh, he delivered this message. There was this church gathering um, in another part of the Congo and he was preaching from 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24, part of our passage today. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. You should follow in his steps. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live a righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. At this conference, he said, we're going to think about following Jesus. It's not hard to follow Jesus when it all goes well. It's just difficult to follow Jesus when the road is difficult, he said. And then he describes the state of persecution for Christ's sake in various regions of the Congo. And then he said, we do not know if we will suffer or die during this year because we are Christians. But it does not matter. It's our job to follow Jesus. That was four months before he was gunned down. It doesn't matter. It's our job to follow Jesus. I want you to see one more thing with me in this part of the passage before we move on to wives and then husbands. Did you see how you were rescued from your sin. Verse 22, he committed no sin, 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth, right? When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Nope. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. Nope. Look at verse 24. Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. When people like Peter and Paul talk about Jesus bearing our sins in his body on the tree, they have an Old Testament passage in mind. It comes from Deuteronomy 22. And it just says this, if someone commits a sin that deserves the death, sometime you're going to impale him on a tree. And, and, and someone who's, who is put to death on a tr- tree is under God's curse. That's what Peter is drawing to our minds here in this passage. This is how you and I were saved. We were gone astray. We were like sheep wandering off in the wrong place. But Jesus came as our substitute. The great high king, the eternal glorious son of God added our humanity to himself. And then he was hung on the cross condemned as a condemned man because he took our sin and put it on himself on his body on the tree, condemned as though he had our guilt because our guilt was given to him. That's how you and I were saved. And that what that resulted in is though you were gone astray, now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I don't know if you can relate to that verse, but I can. Can you remember the days, the moments the weeks, the months where you strayed, where you went your own path, you did what you wanted to do. Maybe like me, you grew up in the church and you knew exactly what God taught. You knew exactly what his standards were. You knew exactly what he expected. And in your, in your mouth, you said that matters to me, but in your heart and your body, you said, it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to go my own way. But God in love sent his son to die on the cross for wayward sinners like me to rescue me. This past week, uh, my parents and I went to the Love Lady Center. I preached there on Friday night and, um, and Saturday night, and I talked to them a lot about God and his grace for a man named Jacob in the Old Testament. But I had them say a refrain for me. I'm gonna get you to say it with me today, even though you're Presbyterians. Um, I said, uh, and so after I say it, you repeat after me, okay? God is on a mission, God. God on a mission. to rescue people. I just want you to know they did that a lot better than you did, all right? They really did. It was awesome. Uh, it was very fun. And so I would, you don't have to do it again. I would say God is on a mission. And they would holler God is on a mission. And then when I'd say to rescue people, I mean the roof almost came off. You know why? They get it. They know that they were utterly desperate, but God and his love came and rescued them and saved them. There's no doubt in their mind that they've been rescued by mighty God because they came out of Tutwiler prison or out of deep, deep addiction and their lives are completely wrecked, but they've met a gracious God who's come after them because God is on a mission to rescue people and they rejoiced in it. And so that's the kind of people that Peter is writing to in this letter, not self-righteous people who have it all figured out, but people who know they've been called out of darkness into light. And we see it a privilege to embody the light of God, even if embodying God's grace and mercy and light requires of us some suffering and some service. I mean, what would reflect who Jesus is and how he gave his life for you and me more than humble service and even suffering in silence 
so that people will see God's faithfulness and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that leads in the next two sections. It's interesting. Now we're in three, one through seven, and Peter is going to address, he's addressed household servants. Now he's staying in the household broadly. He's going to address wives next and then husbands. That's also cross-cultural. It's weird that an apostle would address household servants in the first century. It's weird that someone would address wives at all. It's really weird that you'd address wives first and then husbands. It's all countercultural. And so the Bible, when you and I read it, sometimes we read the Bible, uh, it's going to, it's going to rub up against our hearts and souls and our culture. And it did for them there in the first century. But I want you to see what he says. He's helping all of us learn how to embody the saving power of God in our actual relationships. So three, verse one, likewise, wives, likewise, probably goes back to that line with all respect. Likewise, in the same manner, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, that phrase here in context means believe the gospel. Go back earlier in chapter two. So even if some do not obey the word, they may be won, won over to faith in Christ without a word by the conduct of their wives. Maybe some of you thought I was just making all this missional stuff up, but it's right here on the surface of the text. Peter is saying to wives in the first century context, in your relationship with your husband, you've got a great opportunity to make the gospel visible. Think about it in their cultural context. In the first century, wives were expected to worship whatever weird gods their husbands worshiped. And so the gospel is moving into this part of the world from central places like Rome into parts where Peter is now writing and there's these new churches and the churches are getting on their feet. So some people have been converted and they're in a marriage and the wife is now a believer in Jesus, but her husband is not. What is she going to do in that situation? Peter is basically saying, do not rock the boat in every way you possibly can't rock the boat because her faith in Jesus is already rocking the boat like crazy. Now, this is what Peter here is addressing is missionary dating. Very different than our situation. If you're one of our college students and you come home after your freshman year and you tell me that you're dating a non-Christian, you want me to pray for your missionary dating. I'm just going to say two words to you. Stop it. All right. But this is different. The gospel is broken into this culture in a new way. And in some situations, the husband believes, but the wife doesn't believe yet. Frankly, that would have been easier in the first century. But in the situation that Peter's addressing here, wives are new converts and their husbands are part of a culture that that they're, they're deeply tied into and their husbands are worshiping other false gods. And those husbands expect their wives to go with them and offer those same sacrifices. What is a wife supposed to do? Well, she's got to be faithful to Jesus and she's, and Peter wants her. He understands how tense it is. And what does he want her to do? He wants her to win him over by being remarkably respectful and submission in every way she can be that doesn't contradict what God would tell her to do. You see here, the goal here is to win him over. What's going to happen when they see your respectful and pure conduct? Do not, and then he, so that's the, that's that first point. Just live such a respectful, submissive life that draws your husband to see how good God is, to see the saving power of the Lord Jesus in your life. And then he goes on to how, how, they'll, how they'll gauge in attractiveness with their husbands. It would have been unthinkable to engage in attractiveness to someone who wasn't your husband in the first century. Those uh, people were severely treated. 
Uh, But look at what he says here about their attraction. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning, these words are amazing. Let your adorning, the assumption is beauty's already there. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is what Peter's saying. Here, here specifically, he's addressing wives and how they relate to their husbands. But clearly, you can see how this will relate to, to all women everywhere. Specifically, he's addressing wives and how they relate to their husbands and, the, and attract their husbands. And what he's saying is, go for what God sees as precious. The, the secret, hidden reality of your heart. Aim for a... a gentle and quiet spirit go for imperishable beauty beauty that doesn't fade beauty that's not corrupted beauty that gets better as you age beauty that god sees as precious and beautiful now uh, peter is here addressing wives but you can see application for uh, for men and women uh, in all of this but uh, just for a minute i don't have to explain to women in general in this room the enslaving power of objectification. Uh, no one has, no, no man needs to explain to women uh, how enslaving it is uh, the way we live our lives surrounded by uh, false perfection of images everywhere all the time. It's exhausting and enslaving. Very recently, someone I cared about was telling me uh, how broken her heart is because she knows, and I've heard many stories like this, she knows that what her dad really cherishes is that she would be thinner. Recently, she was talking to her sister about that. Uh, this woman I was talking to is unmarried. She was talking to her married sister. And as she talked about this, they were listening to a song, helping them kind of process how they felt. And, and the married sister said, you know what? My husband loves me. He doesn't care if I weigh this to that. I know he loves me and values me. But even, even with that, they began to sob and weep together because their earthly father was, was letting them know in various ways that they didn't visually match up to the standards that he had for them. So we get it from, from dads who have that kind of folly in their hearts and we, we get it from the culture. It comes from inside, it comes from outside. And I just want you to see how freeing this is. God who created you says, I know what true beauty is. And I invite you to have that which is unfailing, imperishable, precious. And it's actually the internal character of the heart. And then he goes on and one more time goes back to the Bible's big, big idea about living on mission for God through little acts of faith. What does he say? He says, if you do this, you'll be true. The true daughters of Sarah. That's who you'll be. Don't you remember who Sarah was? As Josh said, introducing the baptism, God said to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to bless you and through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And don't you see, if we look more at the heart and live lives of joyful submission so that those around us see the saving power of God, we're really participating in what God has called us to do. That is bear his grace and glory to others. And that leads us to the final group uh, spoken to here, and that is men who happen to be husbands. He's going to talk uh, to others l- more 
later on, but verse seven, likewise, I think once again, the reference is with all respect, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Isn't that interesting language? So finally, Paul uh, writes to husbands. Now listen, you can find letters in the ancient letter from moral philosophers and and other kind of thinkers, and they'll write and tell men how to control their wives. Uh, They'll they'll write, and, and they have a lot of derogatory things to say about women. Peter just said, God sees a heart of character and calls it precious. And here's what Peter says to husbands. Yes, we, we, I know that you're physically bigger and stronger than she is. I know that she's weaker than you are. I want you to honor her in light of that. And the obvious implications like be her protector. Make sure she knows she, she, she's secure. Honor her. So he says, honor her. Then he says, don't forget your co-heirs. Jesus is the heir of all things. And you and your wife are equally co-heirs with Jesus of his grace and glory for eternity. So he says, honor her, your co-heirs with her. And then he says, but if you misuse that authority, so let me not skip that. It's obvious throughout lots of passages in the Bible that God gives husbands genuine and real authority in their marriages. And then he says this, if you abuse it and misuse it, it will hinder your prayer life. If you use the authority God has given you for your own good and for her detriment, that's hard-hearted living and it will hinder your prayer life because God isn't responsive to the hard-hearted when they pray. In other words, I mean, what is it that makes God not listen to your prayers, but hard-hearted evil and rebellion? So there's no question here about whether or not uh, husbands have authority in their homes and in their marriages. The question is, how are you going to use it? And of course, Peter all along has been talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about him, the true king, all glorious, ruler over all things. And when he came, how did he live out his royal authority as the Christ? He gave his life away in love as a servant for his bride, the church. You and I to live out these roles are gonna need strength and grace from that king and he'll give it to us as we meet him at the table. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son for us. Lord Jesus, now nourish us with your cherishing love as we draw near to you. Amen.